Amen. Good morning. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see everybody here today. I have to get a quick announcement out of the way before we jump into the text this morning. For some of you, you may not know, most of you already know, that uh, we've been in the process of an affiliation now for 18 months. Uh, this church for many, many years was a Baptist church, and I grew up in a Baptist church, but then brought, God brought me to the Calvary Chapel movement, and so when this church called me over, they knew what they were getting when they got me. And uh, through 18 months that it's taken of these kinds of questions that they make me answer, they're like senior thesis kind of questions, like, do you believe that Jesus is God? Why or why not? Support your answers with Scripture. Here's the Bible. Go for it. Knock yourself out. But, you know, they just want to make sure your doctrine's sound. For those of you who have been raised in a Baptist church or just about every uh, evangelical church here uh, in the area, um, we have basically the same basic uh, tenets of the faith that we believe in. And we put on the back counter there our statement of faith. It's the exact same thing that the Baptist church agrees with as well. You'll find no doctrinal differences there. But after an 18-month process, finally, finally, we are now, you'll notice on your bulletins, we are a Calvary Chapel. Now, yeah, you can applaud us. And actually, Nate has a slide. The Calvary Chapel logo is a dove. And so one of uh, our men who attend the first service came up with a, a nifty logo to come up with that would represent the time frame in which we were waiting to become a Calvary Chapel uh, of an egg that hadn't quite yet hatched. So that was our old logo. The egg has now hatched. And so now you'll see the signs changing in the next few weeks. A new website will go up in a few weeks and it will have a dove. The dove has hatched after all. What does this mean to you? Nothing. We've been operating like a Calvary Chapel the entire time I've been here, and nothing's going to change. So don't worry about it. If you've enjoyed coming here while we're a Capitol Community Church, you're going to enjoy coming here as a Calvary Chapel. No different. One thing is kind of cool is we get to plug in with other like-minded churches in things like baptisms, like on August 12th. And you'll see a bunch of people from our church, but from other churches being baptized as well. Things like men's retreats, some of you who got to go, those things aren't very uh, cost efficient if you try to do it all on your own, if you rent out a conference center and you're taking 30 of your men from the church instead of combining churches, it's just an easier way to do it. So it'll be fun, we'll enjoy it, but enough of all that. John chapter 18 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to read from 1 John, from John's epistle, chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but you can look at it later if you want. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where the apostle John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, then, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. What the Apostle John is basically saying is behind every teaching is a spirit. Not necessarily that every teacher is indwelled with either the Holy Spirit or the Antichrist. He's not saying that. But behind every teacher, every teaching, there is a spirit. 
And he says that if anyone confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that teaching is of God. That Jesus, who is the Christ, right? Christ is a messianic term, which means he was the Messiah who died for the sins of humanity. Anyone who confesses that he has come, the word come suggests that he was sent. We were all born. We didn't come from anywhere. Jesus Christ came from heaven. He was sent to die on the cross. If someone confesses that, then you know that the Spirit of God is behind that confession. But if they say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, then you know that that Spirit is not from the Spirit of God, and that is the Spirit of Antichrist that is in the world already today. Not the Antichrist per se, but the Spirit of Antichrist in the world today. So it is so important for us as believers, to discern and test the spirits so that we are not misled by false doctrine, so that we can help and warn others that might be misled by false doctrine as well. And we have seen a rise, especially in the last five years or so, in new age, what they call guru, spiritual teachers, in the world today that have basically taken the tenets, the foundations, the fundamentals of the gospel, flipped them upside down, and have used those things to promote false doctrine, write books, put on conferences, and start basically a new religion. Now, I want you to know my heart before I begin down this road. I hope, I Please understand, it is not my heart to attack anyone. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm addressing what they are promoting. That's what I'm doing, okay? This is not personal. I'm not questioning anyone's character or talking about that person as an individual. I don't know about you, but I can go to a movie or a ball game where I know the star is someone who disagrees with me on everything philosophically. The cross, their politics, their social stance, whatever. And I can still enjoy the ball game. I can still enjoy the movie. So I am not attacking anyone's character. I'm making sure that we're aware of what some folks out there are addressing. One of the most powerful, prominent, wealthy, and popular people in the world today, Oprah Winfrey. Have you noticed that about five years ago she shifted her emphasis from what was previously more social and philosophical issues and now has sort of dove into the realm of spiritual? I mean, fully she has. Oprah claims to be a Christian, but you can go on YouTube and you can click on a video and you can type in Oprah and Jesus, and you'll find all kinds of things that Oprah has said recently regarding Jesus Christ. One of the things that Jesus said, that Oprah said, that flies in the face of what John wrote in his epistle, and she said, you know, as a Christian, I used to think that Jesus came to die on the cross, but I now realize that he came to teach us the Christ consciousness. In another video, she says, well, arguing politely in love with some members of the crowd who were Christians, apparently. 
she repeats over and over again, there cannot be only one way. There cannot be only one way. There cannot be only one way to heaven. You can go on her website if you want, because I'm the kind of guy, I don't want to take things just for what someone tells me. I'm going to check it out for myself. Go on her website, and you can see that she is promoting spiritual teachers whose philosophy runs contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can type in the search box on her website, Oprah's 10 favorite books from the past decade, and most of those books were written by authors and teachers who are promoting an approach towards the validity of all faiths. People like Eric Butterworth, who wrote a book called Discover the Power Within, who says, quote, in his book, Jesus did not come to teach us how divine he was, but to, but to teach that divinity was within us. Maybe you've heard the name Eckhart Tolle before. Someone Oprah's interviewed many times, has been on a lot of talk shows and radio shows. He's also written several books. He's said these things before. He said, all religions are equally false and equally true depending on how you use them. And man, he says, made God in his own image. Just the opposite of what the Bible says. And Marianne Williamson, who has her own blog on Oprah's site, and I think still to this day has her own radio show on Oprah's network, is promoted throughout Oprah's site. In fact, uh, it is Marianne's prayer that Oprah posts on her site for the victims and the families of the tragedy that took place in Aurora, Colorado this past week. Marianne Williamson has also authored several books and is a radio personality, very well known, goes to lots of conferences and packs out crowds to hear her speak. And she writes such atrocities as, there is no sin, and a, sin, a slain Christ has no meaning, and do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Now, understand that these folks are not denying that Jesus lived. They're not denying that he went to the cross. They're not even saying anything disparaging about his character per se. They are simply watering down, redefining the gospel, and they were calling into question what Jesus' intent and understanding was of his own mission while he was here incarnate. But that's quite problematic because that means they're changing the gospel as the English preacher of the 19th century, Griffith Thomas, once said, half a truth is more dangerous than a lie. And someone else once said, those who modify truth have always injured the truth more than those who have denied it openly. So in light of that, it's why as we come to John chapter 18 this morning, I think we could safely say that John 18, for a few subtle ways that you'll see in a few minutes, is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Now, I know I keep saying that every week with each new chapter that we come to, but like a good movie, it seems to just keep getting better as we go. But John 18, the reason why this is so important is because you're going to see what's going to be demonstrated here is Jesus' Jesus's intention, his clear understanding of what he was here to do. Not that that hasn't been made known throughout the book of John, but it is more poignant here in this chapter than any other chapter perhaps in the Bible specifically from John's perspective as he recalls the events of that evening. Verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these 
words, and of course that's the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 to 16, and then his prayer in chapter 17. You remember, he prayed for the disciples, and he prayed for future disciples, that we would live a sanctified life, that we would live lives that would bring glory to his name. When he had finished speaking those words, it says, verse 1, he went out with the, his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So, Again, the public ministry of Jesus is over at this point. Uh, he's done addressing his disciples in terms of the last-minute instructions that he was going to give them, which by themselves show that he had planned on departing, because that was the whole point of the Upper Room Discourse. I'm leaving, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit in my stead. But here, we've come to 18. All of that's over now. He said last time, my hour has come. His hour has come, and they cross over the brook Kidron to this famous scene you know takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Kidron there means dark or murky. The reason it was called that was because the waters of that brook or that creek were dark. They were stained by the blood that had come down from the sacrifices. The Kidron Valley is just below and to the east of Old City, Jerusalem. So during the Passover, the historian Josephus estimates there may have been as many as a quarter of a million lamb that were sacrificed during the Passover time. And of course, this was during the Passover time. And so perhaps as Jesus is crossing over the brook Kidron, the waters there are stained almost blood red, which would have been a vivid reminder of his soon sacrifice, also closure ultimately to a system that was only meant to be a foreshadow always of what he was coming to do, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because remember, all along, this had been the plan. We could go on all day long, but John chapter 10, he had said that he was the Lamb of God and he lays down his life as the good shepherd, he said in John chapter 10. For the sheep, the good shepherd lays down his life over and over again. And that's what he plans on doing. He knows as he crosses over, he knows as this scene takes place in the garden, that that is about to take place, that his hour has come. You know, in other incidents throughout the book of John, we've seen where the religious leaders sought to get him, sought to arrest him. But in every instance, they failed. He either miraculously escaped through the crowd or they didn't seize him for fear of the reaction from the crowd. But this time, he goes to the garden. And by going outside of the city, and again, when we talk about the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, we're talking about Old Town Jerusalem. Old Town Jerusalem is like a mile square. Okay, It's a very small place. So with all the pilgrims packing out that place, he goes out of the city so that he would not be hid from the buildings or protected from the crowds. He goes to a spot that would be easy for him to be found and easy for him to be arrested. Now you say, why? Why would it be easy for them to find him here? Look at verse 2 and you'll know why. Right away it says, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas knew where Jesus would be. And have 
pagers and Facebook in those days. And so you have to go, where might he be? Oh, we know someone who might know where he is. And Judas, we know, betrayed our Lord Jesus. But we think of Judas alone, exclusively, as the one who betrayed Jesus. But in a lot of ways, Judas is just a picture of an unbeliever who's looking out for number one, who's trying to get a little something out of this. This might be the first example of insider trading. Judas traded inside information for the whereabouts, the whereabouts for 30 lousy pieces of silver. And we know that those pieces of silver were used to purchase a plot of land. We don't know if Judas bought the land himself or if the religious leaders did afterwards because the book of Matthew tells us he took that silver after he had betrayed our Lord and threw it back at the religious leaders. Nevertheless, he still went out to that field and hung himself, a field that was purchased with blood money. And sadly, so often in this world, people will stab backs and betray friends to get a couple bucks. And when it's all said and done, it will lead ultimately, if they don't repent, to their demise. They'll hang themselves in those pursuits because there's no end game there that can be accomplished. But it wasn't just Judas, by the way, who betrayed our Lord. Last week, someone said to me, you know, Pastor, Mel Gibson got a lot of heat for his movie because it seemed like he was blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus. Who really is to blame for the death of Jesus? I'm like, you have no idea how complicated that question is. But suffice to say this, Jesus died for sinners. So ultimately, the only people that are responsible for the death of Jesus are sinners. That's it. Nobody else. Just sinners, which would include every single one of us. And it was prophesied a long time ago that all would betray him. You may have remembered if you were here Easter Sunday when we looked at that famous messianic prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, in which Isaiah writes, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. Every single one of us. No one here was born a Christian. At one point, all of us were in rebellion from God, had turned our backs on God. Even as Christians sometimes, we fall away, we turn away from the Lord for a period of time. And so Jesus is used to this kind of thing. In fact, in John chapter 16, remember, he told the disciples that this very thing would happen. Remember when they said, no, 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 we're not going to back down. We believe what you're saying. We now know that you were sent by the Father and that everything that you're telling us is from him. We believe. Remember Jesus' response? He said, do you now believe? And then in verse 32, he said, indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. They'd all be scattered. So it's interesting about this scene. John, he doesn't record the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane the exact same way the other, disciple, the other gospel writers do. 
You know, the other gospel writers record Jesus' prayer in the garden, not the prayer before the garden, but in the garden. It was a prayer of anguish. Jesus wasn't exactly excited about the cross. He wasn't looking forward to it. Paul said he despised the shame of it. We know that he sweat great drops of blood in anticipation of the cross. Now, why? Was it because he knew what was awaiting him in terms of, of pain and shame? Quite possibly, you know. But could it also in part be that he knew that his buddy was about to betray him, that he knew his friends were about to scatter, that one would deny him? Could it be in part that that also was something Jesus was very much not looking forward to? And from that vantage point, probably just about everyone in the room this morning can relate to a time in their lives in which you felt alone, in which you felt like people weren't there for you, in which you felt like a friend didn't come to you when you needed them most. I think that's how Jesus felt a little bit. I was in a prayer meeting this week, and one man prayed, the least likely candidate in the whole world that would pray such a prayer, and he said, Lord, sometimes it seems like I have a million friends, and at other times, at other times it seems like I have one. You know what that's like? Sometimes when you feel like the whole world's against you, it's a difficult, difficult thing. But just know that Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he wasn't first willing to endure himself. Because not only had he been expecting the betrayal, he had planned on the betrayal. It was a part of the plan. Don't forget that the betrayer, the denier, the scatterers, the back-turners were all chosen. So God knew in advance that this was going to happen. The betrayer was prophesied in the Old Testament. The disciples, it says in Luke 6, Jesus stayed up all night praying before he chose the disciples. And he chose Judas. And he chose Peter, who we'll see next week, denied him as well. So God knows. And what I'm saying to you, what I'm suggesting to you is this, that sometimes in your life, God puts someone into your life that will turn their back on you. That he's sovereign and that he can even work through those kinds of scenarios in your lives. That there's purpose even in the midst of those kinds of things so that we can see how we'll respond when we're let down by a friend. I think of uh, David and Saul. Remember King David? After he slayed the giant Goliath, he became very popular in Israel to the point where Saul started to get jealous, right? They had this saying, it's in the Bible, that Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And that gun under Saul's skin, he was frustrated by that, and he decided he was going to hunt down David and kill him, even though David was used by God to deliver the nation from the Philistines. And David was on the run for a long period of his life, hiding out in caves, 
fact, we know that at one point, he's hiding out in a cave, and he starts to stumble out of the cave, and who does he see but Saul sleeping. And even his boys were like encouraging him, go ahead, take him out, here's your chance. God told you you're going to be the king. You'd be justified in doing this. And David said, no, no. I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Recognizing not only that Saul was called by God to be the king of Israel, but maybe in a way also David realized that Saul was called of God, was a part of the ordained plan in David's life as well. That that was part of his character development. That sometimes there is an irritant in my life. There is a person in my life in the cubicle next to me. It's part of God's refinement in my life. To shape my character. To humble me. To mold me. The way that he wants me to become more like. This isn't something, of course, that surprised Jesus. But it's something sometimes that surprises us. Betrayer 101. It's a mandatory course, not an elective. I think everybody's got to take it. I think we all have to learn from it. I know it's shocking, especially when it happens in the church. Because you go, wait a minute, but I looked up to that person. No supposed to be godly people in the church. I didn't think they were like me. Right? I've gossiped before. I've backstabbed someone before as a Christian. I've done it. We've all done it. Forgive me if I'm accusing you, but I'm just kind of including you in the collective group this morning. We're guilty. Some people, they have to learn. We have to learn from that very experience. It's a necessary lesson, and here's why. It's because it's when you discover then that people aren't perfect, that you're not here in church simply to receive. Because if you're here simply to receive, to be fed the word, to worship, to fellowship, to enjoy what you have here in Christ, and you're supposed to enjoy all those things, but if you're here simply to receive, then when someone lets you down, then you're going to get overly discouraged. But if you're here to serve, if you're here to give, then no one can let you down because your purpose, your intent, like Jesus, is to give. You're here to serve. And you don't put man up in a position where if he does something wrong, you're like, oh, I melt away, I can't take it anymore. Because you realize you're here because God's called you here and you have a calling of God. That's why Jesus headed to the garden. He went to the garden because he knew Judas would betray him. He went to the garden because he knew that he would be found there. He came to give, not to receive. That was the heart of Jesus. He knew his hour had come. In fact, as we come to verse 3 here, the hour has officially, here in verse 3, come. It says, then Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Scholars say that the word detachment is one-tenth of a legion. A legion would be 6,000, so it could be that he has as many as 600 soldiers. might have been comprised of Roman soldiers or temple guards or a combination of both. Notice it says there that they have weapons. The other gospel tells us that they had swords and clubs. 
So you have 600 troops, maybe a couple hundred other, you know, chief priests and Pharisees that are with him as he shows up with Judas. And they're carrying lanterns and torches that are burning and swords that are shining, perhaps reflecting the full moon. Because at Passover, it would have been a full moon that time of the year, the season of the full moon. So remember also, no street lights in those days. So this must have been quite a scene as Jesus sees it coming from a distance. As these guys become crossing over the Brook Kedron, it's like lining up for a race from the wharf to wharf. 20,000 people? How far back does that line go? Well, when it's really, really dark at night, really dark, I'm sure Jesus sees this coming. Oh, here we go. The hour has come. I wonder what that must have looked like. But this verse here clearly, clearly demonstrates how little Judas knew about Jesus Christ. Even though he had spent three years with him, the only thing he did know was where to find him. But what in the world was he doing? What was he thinking bringing a detachment of troops with him? Did he not consider for one second that the one who calmed the sea with one word and then walked upon that sea... Did he not consider for one moment that the one that fed the multitudes, the one that raised Lazarus from the dead, might, just might be ever so slightly mightier than 600 troops? Did he not consider that? Or did he think that they needed lanterns and torches because the light of the world would be hiding and the brave 11 would have set up an elaborate ambush for these 600 men? And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The exact opposite is taking place here. Verse 4 says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Would you look at that again, please? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Jesus is not taken surprise by anything. You know that's true in your own life as well? When something happens to you, when stuff happens in your life, when you're going through a deal, Jesus doesn't go, oh, no. I wasn't counting on that. I wasn't quite ready. We need to have a powwow here and figure this out. No, he doesn't do that. It says he was knowing all things that would come upon him. And then it says he went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? He went forward. He approached them. Why? Because he knew all along what he had come to do. He had been saying it over and over again. He had been predicting his death many times. And oftentimes the disciples didn't understand, what do you mean? But he had been saying it again and again. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I am the good shepherd. He kept telling them that. He said, I go away, and where I go, you cannot come. They understood that. In retrospect, in the book of Acts, they would get to know that, but at this point, they didn't. But he did all along the way. He knew why he was there, but interesting, he sort of turns the tables and asks them why they were there, sort of forcing them to consider what their motive was in all of this by saying, whom are you seeking? Here, they answered him, verse 5, and said, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said to them, I am he. If you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible or a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice the word he there is in italics or in brackets, which means it's assumed 
in the sense that he's saying, yes, I am the one that you're looking for. I am he, but it's not included in the original language. So that means that Jesus basically said, I am. Which is what? The name for Jehovah, the name for God. And it wasn't the first time he had used it. He had used it several times. But remember when Moses met God at the burning bush, and he said, who shall I tell them sent me? And the voice from behind the bush said, tell them that I am that I am. And so Jesus all throughout the gospel, he didn't discover the Christ consciousness. He didn't discover the God inside of him. He'd been saying it all along. He'd been saying before Abraham was, I am. He had come. He was sent. He didn't realize it. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am. And it says, and Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Literally floored by the glory of Jesus. Awesome scene that must have been. Now sometimes, and I say this cautiously, okay? Sometimes, don't you just get floored by the Lord Jesus? I mean, he just, his presence alone just gets a hold of you and redirects you or kind of knocks you off your feet or sort of recaptures your heart once again when he just reveals himself. He's, I am Joe. I'm God. Do you understand that? Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> what do you want me to do, Lord? And then he sort of, okay, do this instead. Have this heart instead. He does that. He has that way about him. His glory produces that effect in our lives. However, this is no proof text for being slain in the spirit, as some would have you to believe. Because even those who practice that custom of being slain in the spirit say that this happens to believers. And John chapter 18 is no worship service. These are unbelievers coming to arrest our Lord. Had he been slain in the spirit the way the people on TV say that people get slain in the spirit, these people would not then get up in a few minutes, as we'll see, and proceed to go and arrest the one who had just slain them in the spirit. So that is clearly not what's happening here. I am, however, not saying all that to lead you to believe that this wasn't remarkable, that this wasn't miraculous. There are those who don't think it was miraculous. That's fine. They're entitled to their opinion. They think that maybe they were walking in a row and like Jesus approached them and the front line got startled and stopped and then the second line ran into them and then the third line ran into them and eventually they all fell backward. That's possible. Or not. <laughs> I've seen people stand at attention when a military officer one, runs into the room, right? Or the President of the United States. I've seen that. I've seen people get really nervous when they meet a celebrity. I've seen that. I've never seen someone go, I am, here, it's me. And then 800 people fall over simultaneously. I've never seen that. So make no mistake, it's a miracle. But more than that, it's the subtlety that I wanted you to see this morning in the text. More than a miracle, it communicates something very, very powerful. Not just that God is powerful, but that nobody was going to arrest Jesus on that day. 
oh yeah, they'll take him away, but he's allowing them to arrest him, and he's sending that message. He could have had them pinned to the canvas all night and just preached the Old Testament to him. Here are all the Old Testament prophecies concerning myself. You're going to listen. He didn't do that. He just wanted to send a subtle little message to them so that they would know that he was chosen to do this, that he was sent by God, and that this was a part of the plan. This was no domino effect. It could have brought six million men. He could have called down fire from heaven in an instant. He was demonstrating to everyone who was there that night and whosoever would believe today that he was totally in control of the situation, that it was foreordained, that it was God's call, that it was his call, that it was their plan from the foundations of the earth. But he was also demonstrating another thing too. He was also demonstrating how he was and how he is able to protect with a word his disciples. Because how else can we account for the fact that they didn't round up every one of the disciples on that night? Except that in the previous chapter, we heard Jesus say he thanked the Father that he kept them. That he kept them. And on this night, it wasn't in the will of God for any of these men to be touched. And he said that in the chapter before. He said, I've kept them, the ones the Father has given me, he said. And perhaps in order to accomplish that, he had to sort of soften the hearts a little bit of this big crowd. And that's why he knocked them to the ground, just to, you know, get them to realize who they're talking to here. So then in verse 7, when he asked them again, whom are you seeking? I wonder if there wasn't a little different tone this time around. Right? You ever said something to your parents growing up and about halfway through you wish you could just pull that right back into your mouth and re-say that? Hey, Dad, get out of the way of the TV. I'm watching the game. Excuse me, son? I was saying uh, I got some guacamole dip. Figure father-son bonding time. Thought you might want to watch the game or something. I'm thinking the second time around, the second time around when he says, whom are you seeking? Let's try this again. I'm thinking the answer a little bit differently this time. Uh, G, 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 Jesus of uh, um, what, we, what we said before up in verse 5. Please don't say your name again. Please. Please don't do that. Torches flying around, shields and swords going everywhere. Let's not do that again. What we said, you, you. I think we think you. You're the one. And in verse 7, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. And see, here's the motive, right? Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, speaking of the disciples, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. You cannot thwart the plans of God, even if they're said a chapter before or a millennium before. If it's going to go down that way because God says so, it's going to go down that way. King David wrote in Psalm 2 this. I love this passage. Many of you are familiar with it. He wrote, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away the cord from us. 
And then David says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Because the enemies of the Lord can plot and they can take counsel all they want, but that's all that they can do. Because eventually the Lord steps in and he says, take me, let these go. And everyone has to agree. Everyone. Even the Father agrees. Because he did that for all of us. He said, take me, let these go. And no one can argue with that. Except Peter, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, probably out to prove, no, I'm not going to deny you. Watch this, I'll have a sword with me. I'll go to death with you. So he's got a sword. He was packing. He drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Good thing he was a better fisherman than he was a swordsman. Although we have no evidence he was a good fisherman either. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And we know from the other Gospels that it's at that point that Jesus stoops down, grabs the ear of Malchus, and reattaches it to his head. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I wonder if we'll see Malchus in heaven. If someone comes, reattaches my ear, I'm getting saved right there on the spot. Uh, there's something different about this guy here, I'm thinking. And had he not do that, some have supposed, there may have been four crosses the next day. One for Peter for assaulting the high priest's servant. And that was not what God had planned, for Peter to die for Jesus. But first that Jesus would die for Peter. Peter would later die for Jesus, at least according to church tradition. But not at this point. Jesus was going first. That wasn't his plan. And so... Jesus grabbed the ear, and he reattached it. And now, all of the evidence that could be brought against Peter would be nothing more than, are you ready for it? Hearsay. Sorry, bad joke. What are you going to do? You stand up here. And... <laughs> Did he do it because he was demonstrating his deity? Possibly. Did he do it because he was trying to protect Peter? Probably. But I think more importantly, he did it because, again, he was communicating to all of us, to everyone that was there, that he was totally in control of the situation. That he could have done whatever he wanted, but that he was going with these guys. He was going to let them arrest him because on that night, that's what he had chosen. And he had chosen it from a long Time before, he said, will I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me that had always been the plan and had never stopped being the plan and nothing was going to stop it from happening? It was always what he was going to do. Listen, Jesus Christ was no martyr who at some point discovered the Christ consciousness and then got caught up in a crackpot political scheme. And even though he was basically a good moral teacher, they arrested him. But instead of defending himself, he just showed us what it was like to be loving. And so he didn't say anything as he went to the cross. That's not true. That's bogus city USA. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Who put Jesus on that cross? The Father put him on that cross. He put himself on the cross. The Holy Spirit put him on the cross. I am that I am put him on the cross. It's so important that you don't let anyone say or that you don't listen or let anyone be misled by someone that would have anyone else believe that Jesus unwittingly went to the cross. That's why he came. That's why he was sent by the Father. In fact, someone please do this research for me this week because I didn't do it. Go back. Just read 18 chapters of John. You can do it in half a night. And find all of the times in which Jesus says something to the effect of, I was sent by the Father. I didn't count it. It's got to be what? 20, 25, 30 times in John alone? Over and over and over again. And every time up until now, I kept going, why does he keep saying that? We get it already. You were sent by the Father. We know that. We know you're the Christ. We know you're the Messiah. We do know that now. But he kept saying that because the Holy Spirit, inspiring John in his epistle, wrote that someday the spirit of Antichrist would come and say that he did not come, that he was not sent by the Father, that he discovered it along the way, that he realized when he turned 30 that God has a call upon his life. No, he was sent by the Father. And on that night in which he was arrested, the question is, who arrested who? Or is it whom arrested whom? I'm not sure, but Jesus gave up his life. It was his plan and his choice. You know, as we wrap up this morning, if you followed at all the events of this week and what took place in Aurora, Colorado. What a tragic scene in which a man purchased a ticket to the midnight showing of the new release of Batman. He walked into the theater. He waited until most people were seated and the movie began. He went out the exit door. He left the door partially open so he could go and grab ammunition. And we know what happened. He came back and unloaded on the audience and 12 people died and some 58 people other than that were injured. And when they apprehended the suspect, he said he was the joker. So sad. And everyone, they're doing all the right things. The president, they're saying all the right things. They're saying this is a time for prayer for the families and all that kind of thing. Totally agree. But you watch a week or two from now and all the talk shows will be talking about what went wrong? How do we fix this? What do we need to change in our education system to prevent something like this from happening? Was he bullied as a child? Was it that his father and mother didn't love him? Was he not accepted in his family? And there will be all kinds of discussion about how we can fix this about how we can change society. There is such an appeal to change people, to fix people. God sent his son not to fix anyone. He knew we were hopeless apart from his shed blood on the cross. God didn't send his son to make decent people good or good people better. He sent his son to make dead people alive. 
So pray for those families. Pray for that community. But the most important thing you can pray for is that that community would come to know that the Father, by His sovereign hand and knowledge and plan, sent the Son to die for the sins of humanity. And ultimately, that is their true hope. Amen.